this morning as we begin John chapter 3, we're beginning to look at this passage that is a very famous chapter in the Bible. John 3 has a most famous verse, John 3.16, and John 3.16 is everywhere. If you go to the mainland and you go to In-N-Out, it's on the bottom of the, the drink cups. If you go, if you watch a football game, sometimes you'll see people holding up the banners that say John 3.16. John 3.16 was the very first Bible verse that I memorized as a child. I only memorized it because, you know, I would get this little diamond for a little badge because my mom had me in this club, and I was like, I want the diamond, and that was about the end of my Bible memorization, but I did get the gem. So it was like a little fake gem for this, this club thing that she had me part of. It was cool, though. Um, but it was, it's like a foundational verse because this chapter is so filled with the like, foundational theme of our faith. And this morning, we're going to be introduced to a phrase within this chapter that is absolutely foundational to our relationship with God. That term that we're going to be discovering this morning is the term born again. You know, I'm sure you've heard that phrase. I've had it, you know, said to me almost like derogatorily, right? Are you one of those born againers? Well, um, no, but I am born again. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so as we look at this chapter this morning and we consider this, let's just see what God has for us in his word uh, some of these concepts, and we're not going to get through the whole chapter today. We're not going to get through the whole discussion on this topic. We're only going to get a little bit of an introduction, and then hopefully we'll take a little bit of a deeper dive next week. But with that said, let's start in verse 1 and 2 of John chapter 3. The heading here is the new birth. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now everyone is, as we get into this chapter, we find that John is introducing us right off the bat to an interesting character. He introduces us to a man named Nicodemus. But he doesn't just say, and there was a man named Nicodemus. And here's the conversation that he had with Jesus. That kind of rhymes, right? A little rap song there. Um, what he says is, there is a man named Nicodemus, and then he adds a very important detail. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. With this man being a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, later in chapter 7 we find that he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a special council of 70 men who had they, had, they were considered to have the authority to set the tone for all of Judaism throughout the world in that day and age. Like, it was the advisory council for all of the Jewish faith. He's part of that group. Talk about the ability to influence. He had it. Um, this man who is a Pharisee, we like to think of Pharisees according to, like, the way Jesus eventually exposed them, you know? We think of them as, like, you're such a Pharisee. It's kind of like a, an insult, like, um, we have the little nursery, the little kids' songs. I don't want to be a Pharisee because a Pharisee's no Pharisee. Uh, you know, like we just think of them in a negative light. But to think of them according to that day and age, like these guys, they weren't just the religious fanatics of the day. These were the guys who, if anybody took their, their religion seriously, it was them. Like everybody else was just messing around, but these guys took the things of God seriously. 
To be a Pharisee, it meant that you followed the highest and strictest forms of morality and devotion to God's law. They tried to keep the law in every way. They took it so seriously. To them, keeping not only the the Ten Commandments, but all the 613 laws contained within the Old Testament, they took it so much, but, but focusing mainly on the Ten Commandments, to them, that's how they worshiped God. To them, that's how they would, you know, like if you want to get close to God, if you want to, you want to be sure that you're going to, to heaven, well, like when the Pharisees would come to Jesus, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he'd say, well, you have the commandments. How do you read them? Well, and he lists them all off. The rich young ruler lists them all off. These things I've kept from my youth. Because in them, they thought, we get right with God by keeping the commandments. We get close to God by keeping the commandments. We are spiritual by keeping the commandments. And also the historical background of it. Keeping the commandments was their way of keeping themselves from idols. The institution of that group, the Pharisees, it goes way back to before the Babylonian captivity. Before the Babylonian captivity, Israel and Judah, the the two nations, the one nation that was divided, Israel and Judah, they would worship any idol that came along. Israel was so bad. Any any idol that would come along, they would worship that, that strange deity. And then Judah followed in her, in her sister's footsteps, so to speak. And anything that, that Israel did, Judah did it worse. And then there you get these sad statements there where it says, So Israel feared the Lord, but served their idols. Like they have this form of like, yeah, God is the true and living God, but I still want to worship this stuff on the side because it's fun. And because of that, God raised up the prophets and sent them warning. But they wouldn't heed the warning of the prophets. And eventually, they were, like Israel was wiped out by the Assyrians and scattered. And Judah was taken captivity into Babylon. Now, when they came out of the Babylonian captivity, there was a group that they were like, we are not doing that. A special group called the Sons of Zadok. The Sons of Zadok. And that special group, the Sons of Zadok, that were like, we are not going to serve idols, that became another group called the Sadducees. The Sons of Zadok become the Sadducees. These that were like, we will never fall back into our idolatry again. We will serve the Lord. We will follow his commandments. We will obey his laws. But the Sadducees didn't, they weren't open to spiritual things like angels, like the immaterial world, like miracles. And the Pharisees are like, we read the Bible and we see that there's miracles. What was God doing with the burning bush? What did he do when he parted the Red Sea? You know, what did Job mean that says, even if my flesh is destroyed, yet with my eyes I shall see God? You know, what does he mean by that? Of course there's a resurrection. Of course there's miraculous things. There's more than just the natural world. So from the Sadducees keeping themselves from idols, you had this separatist group that was like, we do the same thing, but we believe in all the Bible, not just parts of it. And then you had this other group, so the the Pharisees. When you think of their history, you're you're like, that's a good group. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of guys that, like, I want to be a a group that, like, takes my faith seriously, and I'm not going to mess around with idolatry. I want to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. That's what I want to be. So if you think of that in that time frame, then you're kind of getting the picture. Like, the community really esteemed these guys. But here's where it got weird. They went from this desire of keeping the commandments to then going, okay, well, how do we define the commandments? Like, what do these things mean? And as they began to define the commandments, they started coming up with explanations of how the commandments would apply 
in certain situations. So they ended up making a book that was supplement to the law called the Mishnah. They still have it today, which is like, here's the Ten Commandments. But when you find this commandment in this particular situation, here's what you do. And when it's in this situation, here's what you do. And over here, here's what you do. And they just amplified and amplified and amplified, taking something that was simple and made it so complicated. Like the section on working on the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to man as a blessing. A day of rest. Give Saturday off. Take it and spend it with your family. So don't go to work on the, on the Sabbath. And so they go, okay, cool, we got that. And then the Pharisees got at it. And then the Mishnah started doing its thing. And suddenly, well, what is work? You know, if you... Mix mortar, you're working. You can't mix mortar on the Sabbath. You know, if you spit on the dirt, technically mortar is made. So if you spit on the dirt on the Sabbath, you just broke the law. Now you can spit on rocks, but you can't spit on the dirt. So you got to be careful. I am so godly, I only spit on rocks on Saturday. <laughs> I'm so close to Jesus. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, they had, they had that. They had another tradition where you couldn't, you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath because that would be considered work, unless it was tying the knots of your own clothing because you needed that to be decent. So you could tie the, a knot with your own clothing, but you couldn't tie like a boat or you couldn't tie up a cart. But what you could do is you could tie up your clothing and then you could take your clothing and then tie your clothing around something that you needed. But because you weren't technically tying it, you were just tying clothing, you weren't violating the Sabbath. So here's the ways to keep the Sabbath and here's the situations and now here's the loopholes. And so in doing that, then they, would, they expanded it even further from the, the Mishnah to the Talmud. The Talmud took that Sabbath law of working on, on Saturday, and then it even expanded it again from the, you know, the, the um, they took the 24 chapters of the Talmud, and then they added, or, or sorry, they take the 24 chapters of the Mishnah and then they added another 156 pages for the Talmud. Just done that one thing. Don't work. And the Pharisees, they loved that. They were all about it. They loved it because it gave them something to show off. You want to know what I do? I do this and this and this, and I don't do this. They had all of their rules, but their hearts were far from God. Not only did they have their rules and then their situational applications of those rules, but then they got political, and then they started finding all the loopholes to the very rules that they're putting on people. So now they're able to not only put a heavy burden on somebody, but they know the way to wiggle, um, wiggle through it. Jesus rebuked him for it, remember? When he says, you guys, you guys will stand out there on the street corner and you'll make these massive boxes of phylacteries on your head. You know, because the Bible says, like, bind the, keep the scripture on the forefront of your mind. And they go, okay, that means put a box with Bible verses in it and tie it to my forehead. There we go, I got the Bible on my mind. You know, Always keep it at your hand. Oh, that means I'm going to take a big old box and I'm going to tie it onto my hand. I always got the Bible right there affecting every activity. Every activity that I ever do. Everything I reach out for. It's influenced by the Scriptures. He says, you guys will, will stand on the street corners and you'll strain out a gnat. Because the Bible said you couldn't eat anything that still had the blood in it. I can't eat this gnat. Ha! <laughs> ha! You'd see the guy out there, ah! 
out on the street corner. What's wrong with that guy? Oh, he's just holy hacking. <sighs> he's just out there, you know, he's feeling spiritual. Look how godly that man is. He won't even eat the blood of a gnat. <laughs> Trying to hack it out. Jesus says, you'll do that, but you'll swallow a camel. You make room for, like, make these demonstrations over these little details, but yet, through all your loopholes, you think that a gnat is unclean. Man, like, you're doing so much worse. They had this tradition that they came up with on how to divorce their wives. If any man finds an uncleanness in their wife, and then they would do that. They, they got it down to where if they didn't like the way the woman cooks, you're out, woman. And they thought they were justified in the law by doing that. They had it set up where the Bible says, honor your father and mother. But you're saying that if your father and mother have need and they come to you, you can just say, I've already dedicated all of my finances to God, so therefore I can't give it to you. They call it Corbin. It is a gift. That was their loophole. Well, you've given that to God? I already de dedicated all of my money to God, so therefore I can't help you, Mom. can't help you, Dad. You dedicated it to God? Well, where is it? It's in my bank account. What do you spend it on? Oh, my stuff, but I've already dedicated it to the Lord, so I can't give any to you. It was a loophole. And in that, all of their rules, and they felt so spiritual by them. In fact, everybody around thought they were so spiritual, but their hearts were so far from God. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were sneaky, they were showy, but they weren't living in a place where they were truly close to God. And let me tell you this. Rule-keeping, rule-keeping. Rule-keeping doesn't get you right with God, and rule-keeping doesn't bring you close to God. They had their rules, and by them they thought, I'm right with God. They had their rules, and they said, you know what? I want to get close to God today. Let me keep more rules. Rule-keeping doesn't make you right with God. Rule-keeping doesn't bring you close to God what makes you right with God, to have a right standing with God, that term, the big term for that is justification. Justified. And justification, a right standing relationship, that doesn't come by rule keeping. It doesn't come from the law. Justification comes from God. And it's received by faith. You're justified by faith. Faith in Christ. In Christ who did what I could never do. Christ lived a perfect, holy life. And then, in love, he willingly offered himself, taking my place for the penalty that I deserved. Because he took my place, I can be justified. The penalty of the crime that I deserve. My sin, my crime was against the eternity of God. And the only aspect of me that will ever be eternal is my eternal future. I just learned this big word, this, or a new word this week. I've been reading through... Uh, Probably one of the greatest Christian minds of all time, Thomas Aquinas. He has this theological book called Summa Theologicae. And man, I've been going through that, and it's blowing my mind. But on one of the things that he's talking about, he's talking about temporal things, eternal things, and then another class classification that I'd never heard before. He calls it eveternal. So temporal things that are just temporal. Then there's like that which is eternal, and only God is truly eternal. 
eternal past, eternal future, like infinite. But then there's what's called eternal, which the classification of that is just angels and humans, where they had a beginning, and then they have that, they go on forever. Eternal, go on forever. If I have, if I sin against an eternal God and my crimes require an eternal consequence, all I have is from now and that which goes on forever. But God is actual infinite in his nature. And so for God to absorb my punishment, at any instant where he takes my place, he pays for it all. It doesn't have to go on forever for him. It's just he is eternal. And so eternal, um, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> that word is there. I'm trying to say it. But you know, <laughs> that, that, that eternal payment at any instant in his, um, in his existence, I guess would be the word. So beautiful. He paid my penalty that I deserve and in him then justified. And then likewise, so justification, a right standing with God, is by faith in what he alone could accomplish. Well, guess what? Sanctification, same thing. Sanctification, going forward, um, deeper with God, closer with God, in your walk, uh, holiness, that same aspect of development, Sanctification, that comes by faith as well. It's the work of God in your life. The Bible tells us, where God says, therefore be holy for I'm holy. He doesn't say be holy as or like I'm holy. Because my holiness can never be like his holiness. But the beautiful thing is, the closer I get to a holy God, the holier I become because his holiness becomes my holiness. You know, his purity becomes my purity. Sanctification, the work of God that shapes you and transforms you in your union with him. The Bible calls that um, being fruitful. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And the fruit bearing is simply because of the life of God. Like that being a partaker of the divine nature. And then the things of God become manifest in your life. We suddenly fall into this mindset that it would be better off, I would be better off in the God business if I had some sort of an outward show of righteousness. I'd be way better off if I could have something to show for it. And that's exactly what it becomes. A show. It's a show. A production. And you get your props, and you get your gimmicks, and you get it all set up for man to see. The reality is, is that God knows your heart. The reality is, is trying to get some show together to have this outward demonstration of righteousness in order to be close to God, that's putting the cart before the horse. The way that God intends it to be is, I, get, I draw near to the Lord. The Lord transforms me. The Lord produce, makes me fruitful. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, all of those things, that's, those are the things that God is. God produces that in your life. And it comes from that relationship with Him. So if you go to try to like do the work or like do the fruit in order to be fruitful, that's never going to work. You got to be close to the source, abiding in the vine. That's where fruitfulness comes from. And so with this idea, this subtle mentality of, okay, I'm going to put on a show. No, when we live by faith in him, growing closer to him, there's going to be a greater displaying of righteousness in our life. Like the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple in the days of um, Ezra and Nehemiah. Where it says there in Zechariah 4.6, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
We love to depend on might. The things that we can accomplish. We love to depend on power. The things that collectively we can come together and do. But the work in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, it wasn't going to be dependent on power and might. It was going to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. And to live out a truly godly life with true fruit that's pleasing to the Father, it's going to be by the Spirit of God. So with this in mind, when your works of righteousness are by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you abide in Him in humility, depending on Him, to you know, He's drawing you closer to Himself, what you can expect to see in your life is fruit. And the fruit of God, the fruit of who God is, will be born in your life. But these Pharisees, they were out keeping their rules, checking their lists, finding their loopholes, having their things to show for it, all feeling like mutually spiritual because of how complicated they had made everything. And yet here's Jesus, and he's not necessarily playing by the rules. He's not necessarily like going through the checklists. And he's certainly not doing the loophole thing. And yet they see in him evidently something that's so different. They see in him power. They see in him authority. They just asked, remember last week, by what authority do you do these things? Like, who are you? So, who is he? They're talking among themselves. And finally, we meet this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Teacher, we know. Who's the we? The Jews, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that council of 70 who had the right and authority to guide and influence all of Judaism. There they were in their times as they're talking amongst themselves, and they're like, look, we know this guy's come from God. Could you imagine if they would have taken their influence and taken it back to the people and said, Guys, like, we don't know everything, but we know that this guy has come from God because no one can do the miracles that he's doing unless God is with them. If they would have just said that, could you imagine, like, the traction that, that the gospel would have taken at that initial um, day? But no, they're talking about him, but they're only talking about him among themselves. And it's strangely only Nicodemus. He comes by night. We later find that he becomes a disciple of Jesus, still secretly. And then at the burial of Jesus, it's him and Joseph of Arimathea that are busy trying to honor the body of our Lord. While everyone else is busy murdering Jesus, you know, and trying to make sure that there's a guard over the tomb. So, instead of the Sanhedrin going to the Jewish community and letting them know this very statement, well, this man, we know he's from God because no one does the miracles that he's doing unless God be with them. Instead, they just reject him and only Nicodemus comes. Just like John told us in John 1.1, or John 1.11, um, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But at least Nicodemus comes to him directly Master, teacher, we know that you're from God. No one does the works that you're doing unless God be with them. And to that statement, Jesus answers in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Wait a minute, like, but I'm doing all the rules. 
I'm doing everything that the rule book says. I'm keeping them all. Not just the rule book, but the commentary on the rule book, and then the amplification of the commentary of the rule book. I'm doing the whole thing. And yet you're telling me that that's not good enough? You're telling me that there's this other thing that has to happen? I must be born again if I want to see the kingdom of God? We find this statement, born again, in verse 5 and verse 7 as well, but the idea of the kingdom of God. It's kind of a big concept. The phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven or kingdom of light, it appears more than 80 times in the New Testament. And that concept, it's not just like when we think of earthly kingdoms, we think of a place with a politic. Like the concept of the kingdom of God is bigger than that. It's not a national kingdom. It's the one of like the absolute rule, the absolute reign, the absolute sovereign control of God. The kingdom of God is where the king, where God reigns supreme, where Jesus Christ is king. And and in this kingdom, God's authority is recognized and his will is obeyed. Now you might look at it and be like, well, yeah, but that's really not like going on right now. Really? I love the old hymn, This is My Father's World. You got to remember that the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It still is. It's not like we're sitting back here now going like, oh no, God might lose. Oh no, all the money laundering that the politicians are doing, it's, that's injustice gone extreme. God is obviously losing. No. Oh no, like all the worldliness and all the, you know, the sin that's out there. But that old hymn, This Is My Father's World, remember the last, that last um, verse of it? Uh, this is my father's world. Lord, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is ruler yet. <laughs> this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be magnified in heaven and earth one. Like, God is still the sovereign. He is still the ruler. And as we we see this, sometimes the Bible refers to the kingdom of God as here and now. It's a present reality. At other times, the kingdom of God is spoken of like this future reality in an era and a place. The Apostle Paul tells us that the kingdom is part of our present spiritual life. In Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul also tells us that when we enter into the kingdom, we enter in when God saves us. In Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so we have this aspect of like, the kingdom is part of our present reality. That the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand, right? Remember Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is now. But yet also, the kingdom is coming. Your kingdom come. Jesus often spoke of the kingdom as a future um, inheritance. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom is is at hand. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is anywhere that the king reigns. And he reigns now, and he reigns then, and he always reigns because our king transcends space and time, and it's of no Um, coincidence that his authority also transcends space and time. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. 
Do you want to be a part of the kingdom? My daughter, Lila, she is a worshiper. There she is, like all nine years old, almost 10. And man, she can just ramp her little spirit up to praise the Lord. She can just praise the Lord. She can be all down in the dumps and get a song. And I can see her. She'll start humming it. Next thing you know, she starts kind of moving it. And next thing you know, she's like dancing and singing at the top of her lungs. And one of the songs that we have is like a kid's worship and praise album. And when she was littler, she was, she was singing it and got herself all riled up. The song's just like righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God. And then the chorus, don't you want to be a part of the kingdom? <laughs> and then come on, come on, come on, everybody. And she's just singing it and praising the Lord. And then she gets to that point where she's just like, I want to be a part of the kingdom. I want to be a part of the kingdom. And how, how, who could blame her? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost? If you want to be a part of the kingdom, here's the big question. How do you enter? How can you be a part of his kingdom instead of remaining a subject of the kingdom of darkness and a child of wrath fit for destruction? How can you enter the kingdom of God? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God now and forever? Well, that's why Nicodemus came. That's why the rich young ruler came. That's why these things would get curious, would come to Jesus. Uh, teacher, we know that you've come from God. No one can do what you're doing except God be with them. And Jesus says to him, as he says to us, you want to enter the kingdom? You must be born again. Salvation requires a new birth. It requires regeneration. Do you want to be saved from your sins? You must be born again. Born again. Nicodemus is confused. What? Verse 4, he says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Here's this spiritual leader, and he's stuck in thinking so naturally. He makes it out like what Jesus is saying is super weird. But really, he's the one that's getting weird. Like Nicodemus, no one is thinking what you're thinking. That is weird. That's not what Jesus is saying. Enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born. No, Nicodemus, not like that. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and yet he is a man who knows the Scriptures so well. He was keeping all of God's rules as far as he could tell. And yet Jesus tells him, hey, listen, Nicodemus, all of your religiosity, it can't get you into heaven. All of your Bible study, it can't get you into heaven, Nicodemus. All of your effort and all of your training, it can't get you into heaven. It can't make you alive to God. Jesus sums it up like this. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's a birth that we all have. But spirit gives birth to spirit. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And then he says, look, you shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. You already have this physical birth, and with all of your physical faculties, you know that it's not enough. You already have your will and your, your, all of your strength. You have your power and your might, and you're working so hard at it, and yet you know that all of that isn't enough. We hear it all the time when I'm out t trying to evangelize, and I'll ask people often like, Hey, uh, do you know Jesus? 
have you been born again? And the answer sometimes is like, oh man, I, it, I cringe when I hear it. They go, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best. You're, are you born again? I'm trying my, you're, you're trying your best to be born again? Jesus is telling Nicodemus and all of us here this morning, if you are trying to bring about the new birth, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No one can experience God's peace by trying harder. No one can experience, no one can feel like that abiding presence of God simply by going out and keeping more rules. No one can know God's power through trusting and hoping in yourself to bring it about. The reality is, is that mankind is lost. The reality is that mankind ran away from the love and care of God. We have fallen. We have sinned against God. God told Adam, in fact, I'll probably unpack this a little more next week, but God told Adam in the garden, in the day that you eat of the fruit, in dying you shall surely die. And something died in Adam that day. It wasn't his body because he lived on, and it wasn't Eve because she went on to be called the mother of all living. It wasn't his will because he was still out stitching fig leaves together to try to hide himself from God. You know, and then when he was talking to God, he was using his will to blame his wife, and his wife was bl- using her will to blame the, the snake. I mean, they were using their will. They were using their bodies. But something died the day they ate that fruit. Their spirit died. So man, mankind is a body. No, mankind is a soul who possesses a body and has a spirit that is capable of having relationship with God. And yet the day that the fruit was eaten, the spirit died. And now it's like mankind is like spiritually blind. Intuitive enough to know, intuitive enough to know that something is out there rather than nothing is out there. But just lost. Stumbling around in the darkness. And so often, like the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind. We've fallen and sinned against God, but yet the miracle of the gospel is, is that like, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you've done, that God loves you and he demonstrated it for you on the cross. And by turning from your sin, by placing your faith in Jesus, by receiving him, like he gives you the power to become the sons of God. I didn't make that up. I just quoted a Bible verse in a weird way. Wait, not there. That one. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, Not born of the will of man, and yet Nicodemus is out there using all the will of the flesh, using all the will of the man to try to keep all the rules in order to become a son of God. That's not how it happens. As many as received him, to them he gave the power, born by the will of God. Listen to me, like, you don't have to be lost any longer. You can't enter the kingdom of God by trying harder. You enter the kingdom of God by humbling yourself and confessing to God that though you've tried, you're finally at a place where you realize that you can't save yourself. To where as much as you know you need a miracle, you are not the miracle worker. God alone, by his own power and his own authority, can work in your life, which you could never do. And that's part of the graciousness of God, right? Like he shows you your need before he provides your need. 
I think of Adam in the garden tending animals, which was all a setup so that Adam would realize that all these animals have a help that's, me, that's comparable to them, but not me. And at that point, he recognizes his loneliness, but God had already seen it and was bringing him to realize it before he would work the miracle. And all of your failure, all of your like over and over again to the point where you're just exhausted from trying and you're finally realizing that it's impossible. That's all God too. So that you'll finally humble yourself and say, God, I can't work the miracle by trying harder, by checking off the list and doing more rules. I need you, God. Like only you can save me. You enter the kingdom by believing in and trusting in Christ. You enter in by as many as would receive him. To them he gave the right to be the children of God. Look, you must be born again. And finally, Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And that's happening even now. Like as you're listening, sometimes, you know, I, I, the wind, like you see it. No, you don't see the wind. You see its effects. And the wind does unpredictable things. You know, you, you kind of think, okay, today's trade winds. And I'm going to try to light this barbecue. <laughs> so I'm going to set my barbecue up behind the house so that it's blocked. And somehow the wind is like, Whoosh. no, you don't. No, you don't. Like, how are you getting in here? You don't know. The wind goes where it wants to. And it does its thing. You see its effect. And this morning, as you've been hearing God's word, like, you don't know how it happened. But it, the spirit of God is, is moving in your life. There's an effect that's taking place there. There's a struggle in you causing this thing to rise up inside. Holy Spirit leading you to surrender to Jesus and be born again. Jesus sensed in Nicodemus a hunger and emptiness. I think that's why he came right out and just, look, you must be born again. Here's a man who's doing his best to obey what he thought God wanted and yet was still empty and unsatisfied in heart. He came to Jesus by night so that not to cause a stir among his peers, to talk to Jesus about the kingdom of God, and Jesus immediately just puts him right on the right track, basically saying to him, like, you're wasting your time if you think that you can enter the kingdom of God the way you are. You can't do it. You must be born again. Uh, like John Wesley Famous preacher, preached all over England, uh, you know, became like the father of the Methodist church. And then after the Methodists, there's another group that was in the Methodists, and they're like, uh, you guys are a little too carnal, uh, so we're going to form a new group. And they became the Wesleyans. And then there was a new group after that. They're like, you guys are a little too carnal. We're going to become the Nazarenes. But nonetheless, you know, it all comes back to this guy, John Wesley. John Wesley preaching all throughout England. And his favorite passage that he preached on was this. He'd always go from town to town to village to village and preach to people, you must be born again. And one time he was stopped and asked, why do you always preach, you must be born again? And his answer was, because you must be born again. There's something that's so mysterious about how God works in your life. And I like that. Like, there's purpose in the mystery. You can't fully comprehend it. You spend your entire life trying to comprehend the infinite in finite terms. And there's always going to be a disconnect. But something so mysterious we don't fully understand it, and yet we still know it. You can see its effect. 
I see the effect of the Spirit in the lives of people around me. I see the effect of the Spirit of God in my own life. And like the wind, you can't see the wind, but you see its effect. You see the results of the working of the wind. Because I see the, the results of the working of the Spirit of God, I, I trust Him. I know He exists. I've never seen him, but I know he's working in my life. I know he's real. And I can see him working in your lives as well. And so are they who are born of the Spirit. This mysterious work of God that we can recognize. We can see God's work. We don't have to understand everything about it, though. That's the beauty. Let me just say that again. You don't have to understand everything about how the Spirit of God works in your life to have the Spirit of God work in your life. And yet Nicodemus still wants to have it all figured out. And that's the next verse, and we're just wrapping it up right now. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? He's just saying, like, you don't even know how it's working. But you can see that it's working. Well, how does it work? (laughs) Faith isn't from figuring it all out. We have to trust him. We have to believe. And finally there, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he shall direct your paths. There's no way around it. You can't produce the miracle. You must be born again. God is the the miracle worker. God is the one that does it. You have to cease from yourself. And you have to trust in him.